Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When I'm having these incredibly low or dark or challenging emotional and mental experiences, that the last thing that I want to do is the work that I'm on this earth to do, which is getting in front of groups, leading meditation, teaching, speaking, facilitating, right? Um, And what I constantly see, and I see this a lot through teaching, right, is when I have really low days and then I have to teach that man, I'm like, oh, I don't want to teach. I'm so so shitty. But once I step into the work and I start to actually share my gifts, even though it's so uncomfortable, it is a form of healing for me. And I feel this a lot with the big quiet and I feel this a lot through teaching and public speaking is that I'll, I'll just hope, you know, just hope that it gets canceled, but it happens and moves through the discomfort. And then I start to see that my gifts are having an impact on people in some capacity. And it starts to remind me of why it's important that I'm having these feelings and I'm having this experience and why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. All right, everyone, welcome back to episode 11 of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. I really uh, just want to take a moment to thank you for listening along. Uh, We are at the 12-week mark now since I launched the show, and uh, the response has just been great and surprising. And so thank you so much for your continued support. Uh, You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com or following me on social media. Uh, My handle on Twitter and Instagram is Wark, W-A-R-C, Meinstein, M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. I'm super responsive to messages, uh, definitely feedback. I just want to continue improving the show. It's been such a fun adventure so far, and I think that it's only getting better. So if you have recommendations for topics that you want me to cover as I broaden out beyond Uh, social media addiction, uh, let me know. I plan on doing a prison reform month coming up in the the next month or two uh, to talk about the issues with the U.S. uh, prison system. And if you have any suggestions for guests or even um, any other format issues that you want to talk about or anything else, really, just reach out. I'm super available. Uh, This has been just like the greatest joy to do this, and I can't emphasize enough how appreciative I am for all of you people that are listening along. So thank you for your continued support. So in episode 11 of the Look Up podcast, I had the pleasure of speaking to Jesse Israel. Jesse is a social entrepreneur, a community leader, a meditation teacher, and a public speaker. He started his career in the music industry when he co-founded Cantora Records. Jesse is the one that was responsible for discovering and signing the rising star MGMT. If you haven't heard their track, Kids, it's one of my all-time favorites, so definitely check it out. He more recently created and leads communities like The Big Quiet, which gathers thousands of people at a time for group meditations in iconic locations like Madison Square Garden. And Jesse and I talk a little bit about that event and his emotions leading up to the Madison Square Garden event for the Big Quiet, which was then the biggest at that time. These are some of the largest group meditations in the world, so it's pretty incredible what he's been able to do. He also started Club, which is a community gathering 
where people not only practice meditation, but they also talk about things that they usually don't have the space to discuss. So mental health issues, familial issues, MediClub has launched over 300 circle programs to date, creating a safe space to share with a community of people that really care about you and what's happening in your life. On this episode, Jesse and I dive into his experience with anxiety, with depression, and with SSRIs. Uh, That's right, you heard it. There's something that I would call imposter syndrome for leaders uh, of of large companies, when everybody's telling you you're crushing it, you don't always feel like you are. And also for wellness professionals, oftentimes we assume that yoga teachers are so Zen, but what's going on under the surface is, is very human. Uh, and so when you merge the two as, as an entrepreneur in the wellness space, it even can become more overwhelming. So Jesse and I talk a little bit about that. Uh, we talk about our own experience with imposter syndrome as we feel our own humanity. I think Jesse embodies what it means to be a leader, and he shares that with me on this show. We talk about the art of vulnerable sharing and how doing the right self-work can heal. We also talk about tribalism and some tips on how you can start your own tribe. So if you're looking to build a community, this episode's for you. Jesse's an inspiration for me and for many others, and I hope that you gain as much as I did from this conversation. So without any further delay, this is Jesse Israel. All right, so let's let's dive in. So um, Jesse, thank you for coming on the Look Up podcast. I sincerely appreciate your time, brother. It's great to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me. And for those listening, Jesse's been really calm as I've tried to figure out this uh, this video conferencing and Zencaster and Skype over the last 30 minutes. Um, I usually try to do interviews in person, but when you have an exceptional person that is willing to give you their time, uh, you have to just do what you can to get a hold of them. So that's uh, that's what we're up to right now. And you know, again, I really appreciate you being on here. So. I guess I wanted to dive just just in quickly. You know, I wanted to talk to you. I've, I've watched a, a bit of your videos online, and for those those people that don't, you know, know who you are, um, and I just wanted to get a little bit about your background, how you started Medi Club, uh, the Big Quiet, and maybe talk a little bit about uh, you know anxiety as well, and and you know what led you from the music industry into meditation. Sure. Yeah. So my story as it relates to this question really starts when I was 20. I was a sophomore at NYU and my roommate and I um, had heard about the band MGMT. They were college students at Wesleyan University. And we had heard an early dorm room recording of the song Kids that they had made um, in their dorm. And my roommate and I heard it, knew there was something special there and decided that we would approach the band about working with them and wound up managing them and eventually forming a little record label out of our dorm room where we put out MGMT's first album. I was a film student. I was 20. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing, but we just went for it. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, it was a blast. And we, we just kind of learned by doing it. And by the time we graduated from NYU, MGMT had really taken off. They were really a global sensation. And it was this really cool roller coaster and, you know, journey for us um, just to learn about the music industry and the fast lane 
and to see a band start to reach the masses and impact people to go from seeing them perform at, you know, dorm, dorm, uh, dorm parties in front of, you know, 20, 30 people to seeing them play a Lollapalooza in front of a hundred thousand people, some really cool moments. Um, on the outside, I was, you know, in my early twenties running this cool company I just graduated from school and, and all was groovy inside. I was, I was going through it. I was feeling a lot of toxic stress and was starting to experience pretty debilitating anxiety. And I began having panic attacks when I was in my early twenties and it was really tough and it was confusing because there was so much perceived success on the outside, but internally I didn't really feel like there were many spaces for me to talk about it. I wasn't talking about it with my family. I didn't really feel like it was something to talk about with my peers. And as a man, I didn't really feel like it was a conversation to have. So I really just started finding solutions to manage my stress and anxiety and panic attacks, panic attacks on my own. And I went to Google, found meditation. I went to a Buddhist center where I first learned meditation. And after um, about eight months of practicing one style, I eventually learned Vedic meditation which is what I've been practicing since. And I now teach a really similar technique to that as well. And it was pretty transformative for me, you know, leading up to the, uh, leading up to me learning meditation, I found that my immune system was pretty shot. The stress was pretty bad and uncomfortable. I'd get sick often, trouble sleeping. I felt pretty disconnected to myself and also felt pretty disconnected sexually. That was actually one of the interesting side effects that I experienced with having a lot of stress and anxiety, not being, being able to be fully present or even perform sometimes as like a, you know, young sexual man on my sexual peak. And that was, mm. that was confronting. Um, and I also found that it was just really hard to enjoy work, to be creative in work and um, to, to, you know, really show up with my, with my full potential and really share my gifts in the workplace. Meditation was a real turning point for me. I found that with a daily practice, I was able to, um, find a lot more clarity and connection with myself. It allowed me to really just show up and enjoy work a lot more and enjoy my social life and my romantic life a lot more. And life started to feel more colorful. And it was so, from there. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's pause there for a second, because I think there's a lot there. Um, so here you are, you're kind of living in some ways the, like the American dream, you know, you're, you're in that almost famous touring scenario with a massive artist that you found and, you know, went after and hustled to, you know, to support. You built a company in the music industry, which is many young man's dreams. And yet you're experiencing this debilitating anxiety and it's having ripple effects throughout your life and your physical health. Um, you know, you turn to meditation ultimately, but you know, how many, how many other paths did you go down? Because I think often we hear this story of like, I found meditation and it changed my life, but it's never, I, I imagine it's never that simple. You know, I'm sure you tried other things. You, you were probably a bit um, confused as to why this was happening. What, what other avenues did you go down? Maybe dead ends did you hit? And, you know, how did you kind of decide, oh, wow, this meditation thing's really working because, you know, for me, when I meditate, it, it, it's taken me a lot of time to even get to where I am today. And I'd still say that I'm just sitting there thinking and, you know, watching the, the critic. Um, it didn't have like an immediate change. So I'm just curious, kind of, again, just 
the other path you took and how long did it take before meditation really started to to have this positive impact? Yeah, great question. Well, I, I will start by saying that even as someone that's been meditating for almost 10 years and also teaches meditation, that it is not a silver bullet. It's not a cure-all. And that I still, to this day, experience um, elements of anxiety and stress and depression. And it's grown tremendously compared to where I was before. But I do want to make clear, and I really appreciate you pointing it out, that meditation does, doesn't make us fully superhuman. It helps tremendously, but mm-hmm. it's not an end all be all. For me, I, fa- I, I tried lots of different things, and I found that meditation was the most um, impactful, but that um, it was a handful of things that helped me get back on track. Um, therapy was really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually uh, had some experiences with medication, SSRIs, Lexapro, which, you know, have um, sort of a, a dark slant in the wellness space. I tend to be really open and supportive of people trying everything. I try not to, to place shame around those. I actually found those medications to be helpful for me and have been helpful for me in periods of my life. I found that having community a, a, a sense of community and some group of peers where I felt like I could be seen and supported and also contribute and support others was really critical. And that has a lot to do with the work that I do today. We can get there in a little bit. Um, and being able to communicate honestly about my lived experience was one of the most important things. Wow. What I mean by that is being able to say openly to my friends, to my family, to groups of people, this is what I'm going through. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm learning from it. This is what's hard about it. And then just being so blown away by any time I've spoken honestly about these challenges, hearing other people go, oh, me too. I can relate in some way. And then realizing that we're experiencing it together. So valuable. Well, I see again, like this is why I asked that because I, I really appreciate one. It's obvious that you're, you're able to be transparent about your experience um, and I think that's that's so critical. And two, like for people to understand that there's not one silver bullet and to understand all of these different things that that came together to play a role. And I really appreciate you mentioning SSRIs because, you know, I know many people that struggle with depression and, you know, a few of them in the wellness space. Beca- becoming a yoga teacher was um, was an interesting experience. But one thing I learned was that yoga teachers are often, you know, the most damaged um, and that's why we're we're seeking, you know, that practice of healing um, and want to share that practice with others. And, and there is a lot of shame in the mindfulness community around using traditional, not non-traditional, but using Western medicine and techniques to try to solve some of these problems. And it's really important to highlight that every everyone has their own unique path um, and whether it be meditation, whatever path of meditation, because it sounds like you tried a few and I want to dive into that as well, um, or, you know, or medication or talk therapy. I also, I also did talk therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy uh, that I think, you know, helped me get through my first of many existential crises. <laughs> I think, I feel like I live one existential crisis to the next sometimes. But, uh, Same thing, but, bro. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, so. I appreciate you. I appreciate you highlighting this piece of 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 what it what 
maybe society or our culture thinks it means to be a teacher, especially in the wellness space, like a yoga teacher like yourself, a meditation teacher like myself, and this ideal that we attach to it, right? This, this level at which we're supposed to be a source of light and perfection and how much of an illusion that is. And that so much of what I've enjoyed in my process of having gone from running a music label and eventually a tech fund within our label to now running a business where we gather people to meditate in mass, thousands of people at a time and also teaching and realizing that it's my human, my lived human experience, the stuff that really makes me real, who I really am as a person with light and darkness complete as one, the full spectrum of experience that being able to celebrate that makes me more relatable. It makes me a more effective teacher and it really allows me to be able to help more people. So when possible, I try to embrace this and also I speak about it. So now you're, you know, you're standing up, running the big quiet and and the big quiet is doing meditations for thousands of people in some of the most beautiful locations and iconic locations around the world. And you're in fact, personally leading those groups in meditation. And you just kind of nailed it. Like I've, I've taught yoga classes of five people. I've taught yoga classes of 55 people. I actually started in New York at yoga to the people. Um, which I don't know if you're familiar with that studio, but it's like sweaty donation based. But that, you know, that imposter syndrome, um, you know, that, that feeling of, wow, here I am sharing this like beautiful tradition and talking to people about letting it go and breathing in light and, and whatever it may be. And I'm sitting there, you know, self-attacking in the background like you're you're fake you're you know you're full of shit this is not you like (laughs) you don't belong up here what are you doing and it's all happening in the background and i'll be like man i feel like this came out in class then somebody will come up at the end of class and be like that was so great your presence is so calming (laughs) (laughs) yeah like only if you knew yeah exactly and i'll say i'm like yeah well thank you but little did you know that I'm going through it just as well. And I think we, we as students and people who, who are trying to take this path of self-improvement, you know, um, need to understand. And I hope that listeners that are on a similar path can understand that, you know, your teachers are also humans, right? And they, you, you nailed it. Like not, not having superpowers, like meditation can give you so many great benefits, but it doesn't make you superhuman it makes you human and noticing that aspect. That's it. That's it. It, it, it builds self-awareness. So maybe we're more aware of it. And we're also, we also become more aware of what we can do about it. But it doesn't make us perfect. And I want to share a quick anecdote in regards to what we're talking about here. Because it was, it was one of my favorite experiences around this. Um, and I'll share it quick. But the context is that MediClub, which is the community that gathers every month here in New York, a couple hundred people to meditate and then to talk about real stuff, like what we're talking about here, um, which is a sister community of the big quiet, which is our large scale math meditations. Like you mentioned at MediClub, that's been a place where over the past four and a half years of me doing this work in meditation and community, right. Which has been very different than the music industry. MediClub has been a place where I've been able to share about my process in front of a couple hundred people at a time. And I've really pushed myself to be very real about my process of going from someone that's behind the scenes, developing bands in the music industry to someone who's now on stage and working in the wellness space and leading mass meditations and doing all the stuff that we're talking about. And it's been really confronting for me. 
I also had a really unique experience about two years ago where I decided that I was going to go off of the very small amount of Lexapro, the SSRI that I'd been on for many years. Mm. And I went off, I, I attempted to do this without any support. And after having been on it for many years, withdrawing from these medications is one of the real downsides of them. It can be really challenging. And I did it. I just kind of cold turkey did it. It wasn't smart. And I was really struggling with shifting off of this medication. And it was happening simultaneously to a, a, like a, a kind of like a life moment for me, which was that the big quiet got booked at Madison Square Garden. And it wow. had always been my dream to do something at Madison Square Garden when I ran a label, let alone, let alone to have the whole arena given to us to hold the first ever mass meditation on the arena floor and to host that. And it was a really exciting, tremendous moment. Were you going to say something? Yeah. It was, so it was given to you? The MS, someone gave you MSG or, or did you have to rent it? Or And, and what I mean by that is that there, we, we received a cold email from MSG asking them if we would, we'd be interested in bringing the big quiet there. No way. It was oh, really cool. So yeah. awesome. What a dream. And they, they worked out a deal with us that allowed it to make sense financially. Otherwise, the rental on that place is so insane. No, and it was, a, it was a real partnership, yeah. So I wouldn't say it was given because essentially we did a ticket split, but okay. it was just so generous and awesome and, and really cool experience. But anyways, what I, was, what I was sharing was that it was this really interesting experience in my life where I got to announce to the world that the big quiet is coming to MSG and, and the reaction that people had was, was really, it was really interesting. And it was another one of these moments like I described when I was running my label in my early 20s where the perceived, the sort of the perceived vision of it was, wow, Jesse is successful. He signed this great band, all this great stuff. There's a similar moment. You're ki- I hear this all the time. You're killing it. You're killing it. You're crushing it. You know, MSG. Now, behind the scenes, what was going on was I was, I was withdrawing from an SSRI medication, which at the time I wasn't really comfortable about I wasn't really comfortable with the fact that I was even on it as this figure, quote unquote, fingers, as this figure in the wellness space. I felt like I shouldn't be taking an SSRI medication, especially as a guy that was that leads mass meditations. And on top of that, withdrawing off of it was really tough. I was going through it and I was feeling stuff in my body that I hadn't felt in years. And in front of MediClub, I talked about this. I talked about how I was bumping into people on the street who were like, man, you're crushing it, MSG. And I would say, thank you. Yes, I'm grateful and I'm proud of this. But what I wasn't saying was how truly depressed and messed up I felt mentally. I felt incredibly isolated. It was probably the loneliest I felt because I think that I felt so misunderstood. Don't get me wrong. So grateful to have had this experience with MSG. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to complain about that, but it was the just even the fact. But even the fact that you feel that you feel inclined to say that, right? And, and and I agree. Like gratitude is crucial. But even the fact that you need to step in today, years later, and say, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful. You know, it's that sense of like there's still that subtle sense of, um, you know, maybe a little bit of like shame around around not feeling excited when good things are happening to you, you know, and, and that's fucking, that's like, okay. Like I, I feel like I do this all the time. Like if I'm not having the best experience, I, so sorry, you're in the middle of your story. So like, I'll let, I'll let you finish that, that piece, but I just want to say like, it's okay to not feel okay. Right. And I think that's, that's what you're getting at. 
Yeah. And the reason why, why, why I throw that little piece in there, because what I attempt, what I do my best to do is when I'm experiencing these low moments or where I'm experiencing this darkness, I, I do my best to allow myself to feel it and to sit with it and also to hold what I can be grateful for. Mm. And I find that it's really helpful in the face of, of emotional challenge or, uh, you know, mental health challenges to, to do my best to stay connected to it. And even when I story tell around the great challenge, I attempt to stay connected to it because it is important to hold both. And I think you're right. There is a piece of shame around it still that, that makes me feel inclined to say it. But what I've noticed is that there's another thing that I've done in the past, which is why I just only focus on the mental health challenges. And then it totally wipes out all the goodness. And uh-huh. there is a balance between being able to hold both that I think is really important in the healing process. But we can get into strategies and stuff like that separately. I, I appreciate you acknowledging that. Uh, where essentially I'm going with the story was I was able to get up in front of a group of 200 people and communicate this. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a group of people who were ready to go to this event. You know, it was, it was coming up that weekend. Mm. And it was such a cool moment to be able to share the reality of what was going on in my life, right? This is, I'm the guy that gets up in front of the big group with the Britney Spears mic on. And <laughs> will see me in a certain way, but this was actually the experience that I was having leading up to it. And I got to tell you, Mark, that the times at MediClub, or really at any time if I'm doing a corporate talk, or talk at a conference, and I'm communicating about this stuff, particularly about medication, about depression, about imposter syndrome, Mm -hmm. that I find that afterwards, the amount of people that will then share with me, hey, I'm going through the same thing in some capacity in my life blows my mind. And the amount of people that say, they kind of look over their shoulder and they go, hey, I take medication too, and I really don't know what to make of it, right? Just continually, continuously having these experiences. I'm snapping, snapping. In, in, I'm snapping in approval right now. I don't know if anyone could hear it, but I, I, I mean, it's, you know, I, like as important as meditation is and self-work, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. I find, I find that this almost like, it's not necessarily, I don't know if you want to call it radical transparency. It might just be the power, the power of vulnerability. It's something about creating you know, and you don't, we don't need to be self-detrimental, but like, there's something about being vulnerable and sharing, sharing real internal experiences that creates a safe space for others to do the same. And I'm, I I was just in Germany speaking about, um, about failure. And that's a country that doesn't have a failure culture. Like in the U S we still have, you know, at least outwardly, I don't, I think in the background, it's not as you know, we're not as advanced on this as I think we claim to be, but, you know, we have this culture of like, if you fail, it's okay. It's part of the process. Get back up. You know, Tom Edison failed a million times. Failure is just the next step to success. All that, of course, you know, I think when you're going through failure, it doesn't really feel that way. And those things feel like cliches, but in Germany, they don't have even that. They don't really have a failure culture. If you fail, it's like a big stain on your, on your resume and your track record. And I'm up there talking about, you know, experiencing a massive public failure. And it's so cool to see just, like you said, the way people come out. And the deeper and more, I think the deeper and more um, potentially controversial the vulnerable sharing is. Mm-hmm. And of course, it has to be real, right? It's not just like shock therapy. The, I think the more people will come around. And that SSRI point is, man, there's so much, there's so much anxiety and depression 
um, out there right now, especially amongst men, especially amongst young young men um, in in our community. And actually, you know what? Even I think this the data shows even more amongst young women, younger women. Um, and there's still so much shame around around taking this medicine, and it's. You know, I think what you telling your story and you sharing this stuff is so helpful to the rest of us who are going through it. You know, I I would say I would say I probably I I think I struggle with like cyclical um, depression where it'll just it'll just come up, you know, out of out of nowhere, like in the middle, you know, everything will be going fine. And then all of a sudden it's like. I get hit and I know myself well enough at this point, having been through some cognitive behavioral therapy that like, it's just, it's just a cycle, you know, and it'll come and it'll go away in, in a couple of weeks. I'm lucky for that. But no matter what the, you know, the self-work helps, it, it helps with awareness, but that's still going to be there. What well, and I appreciate you sharing about your own experience. And what I've seen is that one of, one of the most powerful antidotes to this is being able to talk about it realizing that we're not alone and understanding that it is a part of the human experience that many of us are experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in doing so and being able to talk about it openly with other people, we allow ourselves to be with it and sit with these challenging feelings, which is so important. And there is so much lear- learning that comes from being with and sitting in the fire of these challenges. And I think that one of the, one of the maybe illusions that we experience when we have these emotional challenges or these mental health challenges and we're not talking about it with other people is that we feel like we need to do something to fix it, that we feel like we're doing something wrong and it creates more anxiety. Uh, uh, there's something about realizing that other people are going through it as well that allows us to be with it. And that in and of itself is healing and validating. And what I've seen is that what you, when you and I are, are, are talking about sharing about mental health or in your case, failure, and then it gives people the opportunity to do the same. What I've seen is that most people are yearning to be granted permission to talk about this stuff. Mm. I think just the way that society is set up now is people are right at the edge of wanting to talk about it, but they need the permission to feel like they're allowed to do so. And that when people model a level of vulnerability to do it, it grants that permission. And then people start to do the same. This is, I think a critical part of how we need to be leading Right. As, as leaders and whatever it is that we're leading, this is such an important part to how we show up as leaders today, especially within our generation, is to be able to model this level of communication to grant people the permission to do the same. And it has a ripple effect. I also think that while we're on the, on the topic of talking about vulnerability, that there is also an art form that is tied to emotional intelligence around how we talk and share vulnerably, because we can see that sharing very vulnerably in a place that's perhaps too raw can become victimizing and it can shift an audience from a place of, Ooh, I can relate to what this person is talking about. It makes me want to talk about something similar to this other place of, Oh shit, I'm worried about this person. Mm. And I think we need to be really clear as leaders. to when, when we're ready to share these things, when it's too raw, I like to talk about sharing from the scar instead of sharing from the wound. If the wound is still too raw, we, we, we want to allow ourselves some time to let the wound start to scar over so we can then talk about the scar from a place of having some learnings attached to it, having some grounded attached to it, some, some stability. 
just a little, some little anecdotes around this stuff because I do think it's important and I think it's really important to talk about how it's most effectively done. Yeah, I think that that actually makes a ton of sense. Um, if you're still going through it, you know, share it in the safe space, right? Share it right, with, right. you know, maybe privately with friends who you know can hold that space for you. Um, share it with, you know, a therapist, you know, close family members if, if they can handle it. Obviously, family triggers, family triggers a lot of people as well. Um, <laughs> so it does it doesn't always work that way, but. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, I have I have a friend who's um, who's going through some things with with uh, with her father right now. He's uh, he's very sick, and you know, she's been um, she's been telling me that she can't. She like want she's the type of person that wants to share with everyone. And what she realized was that some people really can't aren't aren't in a place that they can hold that space for her right now. You know, when they hear it, it almost makes them uncomfortable and they don't know how to react. And then they reflect mm. that back to her and it makes her feel worse. Mm. And so I think that's that's definitely an example of maybe, you know, just being a little a little cautious with the idea that just being vulnerable is is the right thing to do. Sometimes you need to protect yourself as well. These things are so nuanced. Right. And that's why they really are. Yeah, we, we you know, there's a lot of sound bites around. Um, mental health and wellness and it's it's very personal it's a very personal experience the rule of the last thing i'll say on it quickly is the rule of thumb that i use for this is is there a clear learning that i'm able to apply from this challenging experience if the learning feels clear i'm likely i've likely started to move into the scar right the wound Mm -hmm. has started to shift over and if I'm so in it that I'm not able to see the learnings around it and just too much in the emotion, then I give myself more time to work through it before I put it on social media or before I talk about it at a public event. So I want to circle back quickly because I have a question um, on the MSG experience. You know, you were going through it. You were coming off of, you know, cold turkey, take the SSRIs. You finally share vulnerably with your MediClub crew, which was a safe space that you cre- you essentially created that or started that. Um, and you know, now the event happens, right? So the MSG event happened. Um, did something shift in your psyche after the event or were you still really, um, really going through it even after? Um, I mean, what I've seen is that when I'm having these incredibly low or dark or challenging emotional and mental experiences, that the last thing that I want to do is the work that I'm on this earth to do, which is yeah. getting in front of groups, leading meditation, teaching, speaking, facilitating, right? Um, and what I constantly see, and I see this a lot through teaching, right, is when I have really low days and then I have to teach that man, I'm like, oh, I don't want to teach. I'm so, so shitty. Yeah. But once I step into the work and I start to actually share my gifts, even though it's so uncomfortable, it is a form of healing for me. And I feel this a lot with the big quiet and I feel this a lot through teaching and public speaking is that I'll, I'll just hope, you know, just hope that it gets canceled, but it happens and moves through the discomfort. And then I start to see that my gifts are having an impact on people in some capacity. And it starts to remind me of why it's important that I'm having these feelings and I'm having this experience and why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. And MSG was another one of those great moments where afterwards I had that sense of fulfillment just through moving through the lived experiences and challenges that I had, communicating about it honestly, sharing in it, having a moment at MSG, 
it was great. It did not cure the experience that I was going through. It provided me with a, a reminder of why it's important for me to be on this path, to be communicating and leading in the way that I lead, to continue to be doing the work of the Big Quiet Medi Club. But it did not solve or fix the issues that I was going through with withdrawing off of the SSRI medication. And that continued to be an interesting road. And it still is for me. So you said, you said talking, you know, talk, talk to me about leadership. Um, you just mentioned leading the way that you lead. It seems like, you know, you're, you almost were an involuntary leader um, in the sense that you liked bringing people together from a young age and you started, you know, the Burger Boys Club and then, um, you know, Medi Club and you started the Cyclones, the cycling group and the Big Quiet. But it doesn't necessarily seem to me like you did it to be a leader. I think you did it to, to come together with people that you like to do cool shit. So talk to me a little bit about maybe, you know, what leadership means to you and how you've stepped into that, that role that I, I don't necessarily think you asked for. Well, I'll say like that. The catalyst for it was that I, I was feeling lonely a lot living in New York City. Yeah, and the most lonely, the, the most crowded and yet loneliest city on the planet. Yeah, right. You know, one like, totally, <laughs> right? Just, I just, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about and I, and I read a lot about what it was like when we existed in tribes, which is how we existed for most of our lived human existence right? Almost a million years. And we shifted out of tribes now about 12 to 15,000 years ago. It's a little blip in the amount of time that we existed in groups. And some of the, some of the research shows that when we existed in tribes, we, we'd encounter one to two strangers in a lifetime. And wow. today I think about how many strangers I encountered just on my commute to my office. It's thousands. <laughs> and that this, this experience of I live a life where the majority of people that I see, I don't talk to. For example, I'm in a co-working space right now where my office is, and probably 90% of the people in my co-working space I see every day, I never talk to, but we sit desks away from each other. <laughs> uh, that's, <laughs> like that's, is, the, that's the reality of experience in, in, is, in work yeah. today. Right? This, is a, this is a unique experience in how we live our lives. I mean, we can, we can live a day, a month, you know, most of a lifetime being surrounded by people, but not really connecting with people. And this is a really new phenomenon for, for how we exist as humans. I, you know, what I've seen through my own lived experience and also what the research points to is that we're designed to contribute to something that involves a group actually cooperating in groups releases oxytocin. It feels good to be a part of something greater. And, and what is what is oxytocin? Oxytocin is a chemical that gets released uh, through our brain, brain into our blood that allows us to have a sense of well-being and happiness. Mm -hmm. And um, it gets triggered when we cooperate in groups. When we existed in tribes, we we relied on each other to cooperate and to contribute to survive. We needed to. Today, it's really easy to not feel needed, to not feel like we're contributing. And, and I think this is, this is foundational to a lot of the mental health stuff that we're talking about. But to bring this back to your question about leadership, it's true. I wasn't like, hey, I want to be a leader. I felt called to creating spaces where we could have a sense of creating something together, building together, being together, contributing to something. 
and having some form of a shared purpose to do something together because I was feeling so isolated, especially in my early 20s, which is when I started the Burger Club, which is essentially an excuse for men to come together and talk about real shit over burgers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Same. It was 10 guys. We would get together every two weeks and we would have a burger at a new location, but we had community and we were there for each other. It was brotherhood. It was camaraderie. And when our Burger Boys club ended, um, I was yearning for, for, to be in that role of gathering people to have shared connection and some form of shared purpose. Um, our Cyclones, our bike club was born because I wanted to find a canvas that was larger than a dinner table that also included women. The Burger Boys was just men. And we started riding bikes in big groups. And by the end of the first summer, we had hundreds of people showing up on these rides, cruising together. But what the I thought- The pictures are so cool to watch <laughs> like hundreds of people on bikes just cruising. It's, it's, great. it's, it's awesome. It's experience. And what I've seen is that if it's cheeseburgers or if it's bike riding or if it's meditation, that really it's, it's, it's these, these simple interests, these simple actions create permission for people to connect. We were talking about permission earlier. And it, that's what it is. It's like, how can I gather people and create some form of permission through some shared purpose or simple activity like riding bikes that gives people the space to feel like they're sharing some form of accomplishment, moving through something together, doing something together, contributing to something together. And when that happens, people start to feel like they're seen and heard and they're a part of something greater. And we start to grow as individuals in our society. And what I felt called to is gathering people so that can happen. And as the person that tends to put the organizational time and energy and skill into those experiences, I'm by virtue a leader. And what I believe is that we all, all have the capacity to be leaders in this way. What it requires is extending an invite and uh, coming up with a reason for people to gather through something that we care about. And then, you know, sitting back and letting the connection and magic occur. I think this is so important, especially right now because of how lonely we are as a people and as a society. And I believe that we are all capable of being leaders in this way. I love that. I was actually going to ask you, as you were describing kind of your journey towards becoming a leader through building community, um, you know, what steps can individuals take? Because as you mentioned, I think you encourage all of us to become our own community leaders. You know, you, uh, you share that it's possible. And so, you know, are there practical steps? Is there any advice that you can offer to a young person who wants to bring together a community? Yes, I love that you asked that. First thing that I would say is, is, is to remove any ideas, really to drop any expectations or ideas that leaders or community builders need to have a certain skill set, meaning they don't need to be charismatic. They don't need to have business acumen. They don't need to have started startups before. That I have <laughs> really powerful community builders and community leaders step up with a whole variety of traits. I used to have an enormous fear of public speaking. My anxiety was so bad. I couldn't speak in front of more than 10, 10 people at a time. So, you know, if I gave into the story of to be a leader, you, you need to be natural speaking in front of groups, groups, I would have never stepped into it. So my, my first thing is that we can create our own rule for what leadership looks like. Let's move out of this idea. Leaders need to be tall and powerful and charismatic. <laughs> um, 
and to start to shift out of that. That's the first thing is we're all capable of it. The second thing is that, and this is so important with, when it comes to building community and being community leaders, we need to prioritize taking care of ourselves. And this is when the wellness self-care shit really clicks and comes into play. And even though it may seem cliche, this is real. That community building work and leadership work where people are looking to us, we're putting ourselves on the line for other people becomes incredibly taxing. It can be very depletive of energy. And we really need to have space for ourselves so we can recharge, so we can feel good, so we can get rest. And this is where meditation plays. I think that having a meditation practice and pursuing leadership, uh, these are these going hand in hand in, in a critical way that having a practice like meditation where we're resetting our nervous system, we're allowing ourselves to experience uh, less stress, less anxiety. We're having more clarity and connection with ourselves, with our gifts, with our purpose, with our power. This is critical to allowing us to be more effective leaders and also to, to have um, more of an ability to feel into our hearts, to be empathetic, which is critical to leadership, to be able to actually think about other people, not just ourselves. Mm. So redefining what it means to be a leader, dropping those stories, having um, self-care practices so we can really take care of ourselves and take the time to show up for people is so important. Um, I'm personally big on having scheduling alone time into my calendar every week. Um, and the third one that I would say is to just start doing it. Really, it, it, it's as simple as finding a reason for people to gather and extending an invite um, and bringing people together and, and letting that connection begin to occur and learning from doing in the same way that I learned from my experience in the music industry, from Burger Boys, from Cyclones, what we're doing with MediClub and Big Quiet, Big Quiet. There aren't a lot of models around this stuff. And what's exciting about it is that the need for this work, especially community leadership, the need for this work is so great right now that the opportunity for people to step up and live into it is huge. The demand is so high. So we need more people to just start trying, to just start doing. And it starts at the grassroots level. You know, I, I look forward to a day when the political leadership of the world is not trying to fill the paradigm that we've created of what it means to be a leader, the, the classic strongman, which I seem seems to be kind of rising around the world, at least on the political theater. But otherwise, really I feel agree. like real community leaders are popping up. So, wow, that was like, that was a really great way to end it. I, I think that's, uh, you know, some pretty awesome wisdom for people to walk away with. And I hope that, you know, I hope that people that are listening feel encouraged to go out and start, you know, and start their own communities and step into their own power and, and lead in that way, um, in their own way. And I certainly do coming off of this call, you know, I've got some more free time on my hands now. And uh, I'm I'm definitely going to try to try to do some more community driven things. I know you have a hard out right now. Um, I was late to the call and had some technical difficulties, so I apologize for that for the listeners because I robbed you all of an extra 20, 30 minutes of Jesse's time. But um, but maybe we can get you back on the show, brother, another time. And I hope that we can stay in touch because this has been really great. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Mark. It's, it's such a treat talking about this stuff with you. Um, you ask such great questions, and I feel like there's room for us to go so deep on this stuff. 
And it's uh, it's a real gift to be able to communicate and chat about these things. So thanks for having me, man. No worries. Yeah, I hope we one day will you know one day maybe soon if you if you'll do it we we can come back on and really drop in for I'm sure we could do multiple multiple hours. Um, I'm gonna post more info on you in the show link so people know where to find you. Um, and if there's anything else you want to say before we jump, just let me know. That sounds great. Um, just such an honor to be here. Look forward to chatting more soon. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Take care. Bye, buddy. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. You can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium, and Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook, so check us out. You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up Podcast. Podcast.